Good morning. Our reading this morning is from Mark, chapter 10, verses 1 to 12. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him and, as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman, commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, sometimes we hear something that's so jarring that we find ourselves wondering whether we've heard right. (laughs) Did I tune out at some point there and miss something important? Because what I think I just heard sounded so full on, I'm not sure if I've quite got the whole picture. And perhaps that's how you're feeling now as these words of Jesus hang in the air. Uh, I've just returned from two weeks annual leave and it's wonderful to be back here at church with you. But there can be no doubt that these words from Jesus, they're pretty jarring. So if you are here and you're checking Jesus out and you find yourself thinking, gosh, this lovely summer Sunday just turned sideways. (laughs) Don't be ashamed of that. There's nothing awkward about that. These are strong words that should indeed leave us wondering what on earth it means for anyone to call themselves a Christian. And to be honest, because they are such jarring words on such an important and practical aspect of life, I reckon it's worth just jumping straight in to try and make sense of what God is saying to us through it all. So where are we at? Well, as Matt has so helpfully unpacked for us over the recent weeks, uh, which you can catch up with online if, like me, you've been away over the last couple of Sundays, uh, we are in the second half of Mark's account of Jesus' ministry. From Mark chapter 9, Jesus begins his journey to Jerusalem where he anticipates his own rejection and ultimately his death on the cross. And that was all pretty confusing to his disciples, who had a lot to learn about what Jesus was was on about. And so along the way, Mark is helping us to see what following Jesus looks like in light of the cross. Or you might like to say, Mark is helping us to see what Jesus teaches about cross-shaped discipleship. 
And so here we are, we're on the road to Jerusalem and, and Jesus is approached by a group of Pharisees with a question. These guys are the significant religious leaders with a really high regard for the law of God and they came to Jesus with a question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Which is a great conversation starter, right? No, <laughs> there's no small talk here, there's no easing in, it's just jumping straight in with a clangor. Whether they were that blunt or not, we don't know. But Mark wants us to see this conversation was pointy. Now, it's a good question to ask if you're a devout person wanting to honour God. It's very fair to come to a respected teacher to get his wisdom on the matter. But Mark tells us that this isn't an innocent inquiry. Did you see that there? The Pharisees came to test Jesus and so they asked. It's a test. And that doesn't surprise us if we've been reading through Mark because Mark consistently highlights how the Pharisees opposed Jesus and they repeatedly sought to trap him in his words because they didn't like the way that he undermined their, the whole approach to God. So they asked this question to test him. And I think that's important for us to note because I think it contributes to the shape of Jesus' answer. We've just read and heard how blunt and direct Jesus was. If he was a doctor, I think at this point we'd be saying he's got pretty terrible bedside manner, right? But this is how Jesus responds when he's tested. If we want to know how he might respond to someone who is genuinely interested in his opinion, who has lots of personal baggage bound up in, in that painful issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage and adultery, well, perhaps we could read how Jesus responded to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Very different situation, loads of compassion, wonderful bedside manner. But here he's being tested by those who want to trip him up. So let's keep that in mind as we go. Now, as an aside, that we don't have enough time to explore at this point, and so therefore I've, as I mentioned, just put some pre-reading or some, some extra reading up online if you'd like. I think there are two further reasons why this is a particularly tricky test on behalf of the Pharisees. And some of this is news to us, but it would have been familiar stuff for Mark's first readers. First, because this is a question that would land Jesus right in the middle of a major debate that was going on in Judaism at its time. He was going to offend someone however he answered it, and they knew it. But even more than that, this is a pretty sneaky test because Mark's brief context in verse 1 of chapter 10 suggests that this conversation takes place in the territory of King Herod and, in fact, right in the vicinity of where Herod had executed John the Baptist. And we might think, why oh, John the Baptist? Why did Herod kill John the Baptist? Mark spent a fair bit of time in chapter 6 telling us that it was because John had publicly condemned Herod's divorce and remarriage to his brother's wife, herself a divorcee from his brother. It was all very messy. So this was a pretty cynical test to see how Jesus will respond when his answer might put him on the wrong side of popular opinion and in the firing line of the local dictator, who's proven himself pretty unpredictable. As I said, there's a bit more reading online if you'd like to get a bit more of that background. But Jesus is asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you? He replied. And unsurprisingly, they reference a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24 because that's the very passage that was the crux of this debate that was kicking around at the time. 
But they show their hand in the way that they misrepresent Moses and therefore misrepresent God's intent. Because they claim to Jesus that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. But in Deuteronomy 24, Moses does not permit a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. In Deuteronomy 24, Moses speaks into a culture where divorce was a social reality that left women incredibly vulnerable to sinful men. And Moses commanded to limit the damage of their sin. Moses commanded that a woman be provided with a certificate of divorce to guard her against a fickle husband who would, on a whim, send her off. And then when he missed her cooking or whatever it was, demand her back. But the Pharisees, along with the popular ethic of the day, had taken licence with this law in Deuteronomy and used it to legitimise a pretty relaxed attitude to divorce, especially for men. And Jesus' response cuts right through it all and takes them to the heart of the matter. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. Jesus clarifies how the law is functioning at that point in Deuteronomy 24. It was not outlining God's ideal, God's underlying intent. It was serving as a retrieval ethic for those who find that term helpful. It's making the best of a bad situation. It's limiting the impact of human sin. So asking what was lawful and looking to a passage like Deuteronomy 24 to work out how we should live is a little bit like trying to work out how close you can get to a cliff to take your selfie. So, here's a picture of Wataka, Kings Canyon, up in central Australia. It is a spectacular place with some of the highest cliffs in Australia, in the middle of the desert, dropping down into this hidden valley of date palms and waterholes. There are so many great places to take some pretty fantastic photos. But every couple of years, tragedy strikes when someone falls over the edge and dies trying to take the ultimate selfie. But there are signs all over the place with warnings like beware, unstable cliffs, caution, loose rocks, danger, cliff edge. But the human heart is great at taking warnings like that and looking for loopholes, right? Oh, that's probably just for those who are a little bit less athletic than I am. I can creep forward. Yes, actually, you would want to be careful of that, wouldn't want you, uh, but if I... Get just a little bit closer or hang over the edge. What are they thinking? I can get this awesome angle that makes it look like I'm flying or something. And that's the kind of legalistic mindset that the Pharisees and their peers were exercising, looking for the extent of permission, working out how far they could go, how close they could get to the edge before they'd crossed the line into what God deemed lawful. And I get it, right? I mean, the truth is, as I've wrestled with this uh, in recent times, I've realised I play this game in my head and my heart all the time. Not in the realm of marriage and divorce, but I find myself wrestling with this when it comes to money and material comfort and generosity and contentment, for example. I find myself asking the same kind of questions in various forms. Is it lawful for a man to make this luxury spend? <laughs> or that particular upgrade? trying to find all sorts of ways that surely it's okay. And when Jesus said, well, you know, we should be overflowing in generosity, or when he said that I can't serve God in money, well, he 
probably didn't have quite this scenario in mind. And so it goes on. But then here in Mark chapter 10, I'm challenged to reflect what it means not to be looking at the edge of the cliff and how close I can get to it, but to turn around and seek God's heart. Because Jesus spoke to these Pharisees. He said, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law. And then he turns them 180 degrees the other way. So that instead of looking at the cliff, wondering how close they can get to it before they slip into sin, they should instead be looking to God to to understand his heart, that that might then inform their hearts and priorities and behaviour and decisions. And Jesus quotes Moses to them again. But this time from right back at the start. First from Genesis chapter 1, where, Jesus, sorry, where God creates humanity as male and female. And then from Genesis chapter 2, where God establishes marriage as a lifelong union with a bond that is as close as kinship. Now that's not exactly what you would think of as a command to determine what is lawful. But this is where Jesus goes. When he's asked a question about marriage and divorce, he goes to God's good intent, God's good design. And in the second half of verse 8 and on into verse 9, Jesus gives his own conclusion. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, we might scratch our heads and we think, well, how did that actually answer the question that they began with? They said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Well, I think in one sense, Jesus shows that it's actually the wrong question to ask if they were paying more attention to God and his own heart and his purpose. Instead of asking, is divorce okay? They should be asking, how do we keep marriages together? Because what God has joined together, no one should separate. But Jesus knew their heart. He knew the society that they lived in and the games that they liked to play, kind of trying to dress up serial monogamy as a legitimate lifestyle, just as long as you've got the divorce sorted out before you move on to the next wife. And Jesus says, no way. You're facing in the wrong direction. And because that was such a confrontingly counter-cultural response, his disciples needed a bit more explanation once they had a moment with him away from the crowds. But if anything, his explanation only became more confrontingly (laughs) countercultural, even more stunning for the disciples. And they are the words that may have been a little bit like a stun grenade going off for some of us here today too. In verse 11, Jesus answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now, a blunt conclusion like this should raise all kinds of questions for us. And for many of us, they won't be just hypothetical questions. They will be deeply personal, painful questions. Does this mean that there is never any basis for divorce? Does this mean that every person who has remarried is an adulterer? If someone has remarried, is this passage trying to imply that they should now try and fix the problem by ending the second marriage and divorce? Where is grace in all of this? These are very real and very important questions and there are many more besides them. 
And I want to acknowledge that we, we simply don't have the time today to try and address them. But it's also hard to address particular questions in a room of 100 people. But if you'd like to talk about these or other questions that you might have, please don't hesitate to come and speak to me. It's important to be able to wrestle with them carefully, patiently, humbly. But even if we don't feel the personal pain of such questions, I reckon most of us find ourselves wondering how Jesus can be so restrictive. We so value our independence that this doesn't sound just difficult. Jesus sounds oppressive. And in the climate of an increasing awareness of the abuse that can take place within a marriage, he might even sound dangerous at this point. And I don't think we should gloss over any of that. So we should be careful to read Jesus in context. In the context of his response to a question that is a cynical test from men who are looking for justification for their legal loopholing, Jesus isn't giving us, at this point, a comprehensive lesson on the ethics of divorce and remarriage. Rather, he is giving us a confronting lesson on the state of our hearts. And so as we ask our questions, we should also pay attention to what else Jesus and the wider scriptures say about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And I want to come to some of that in just a moment. But before we do, before we jump to those questions that are, are right there in the front of our mind, I want us to first pause and consider how Jesus' words here are actually good news. They are life-giving and not oppressive. Jesus isn't presenting marriage as some oppressive institution, but showing us the wonderful heart of God revealed in a very positive view of marriage. So first, a couple of observations. When asked a tricky ethical question about divorce, it is worth noting that Jesus takes us back to God's creation intent before the fall, before human sin distorted relationships. I think this is really helpful for us to reflect on, that the goodness of creation and God's intentions in it should still shape our priorities and behaviour, even in the messiness of sin and its impact on relationships. So related to this, in verse 6, uh, Jesus points us to God's picture uh, of, of humanity as male and female, both equally dignified in their humanity, yet with humanity only complete in their complementary nature. It's actually a beautiful picture of what it means to be human and what it means to be male and female, dignified, complementary. And it speaks into so much of the gender wars and the abuses of relationship that too often arise. Furthermore, a couple of other observations. When Jesus takes the Pharisees to the establishment of marriage in Genesis chapter 2, which we read in verse 7 of Mark 10, he reminds them of what they seem to have forgotten that it is a tremendously good thing that the union of marriage is designed to be deep and substantial and lifelong. This is not the picture of a marriage, of an oppressive God, rather, who gives marriage just to punish people, but a God who longs for deep and substantial and enduring relationship. And if we dig deeper into Genesis 1 and 2 and how it frames this picture of marriage, we see that marriage itself is a signpost to something even greater, the the greater beauty of what God is doing with all of humanity, that is, not just for married people, 
but that marriage here is a picture of God's greater project of uniting himself with his people in a deep and enduring faithful way. Now there's obviously so much more that we could say about this so again I've included some suggestions for further reading in the sermon notes online if that's kind of intrigued you and you you want to think further into that. But the point to be made here is that Jesus points the Pharisees and us to the wonderful heart of God and his good purposes for marriage in an incredibly positive way that should reframe the whole question that the Pharisees were asking that we might find ourselves asking too is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife and i think we could sum up jesus point to say that if we're looking at god's good intent for marriage then that's the wrong question to ask as your opening question because a christian person will want to do everything they can to maintain the deep union that god has brought so a christian person will never seek to end a marriage Now, Jesus obviously didn't put it quite that way. But I've chosen to use those words because I think they help us to make some sense of the nuance that the Bible gives to answer this this question when it's asked genuinely, rather than by someone who's just trying to legitimise sin. A Christian person will never seek to end a marriage. You see, the Pharisees that Jesus were addressing... They were looking for a way to legitimise their adulterous intent, to be able to move on from one wife when you found a better option. And I hope you pardon the sort of the gender-specific language that I'm using there, because that is very much their mindset. They didn't envisage women having the same kind of provision. And Jesus says, no way. Don't try and play that game with me. You cannot simply legitimise your adulterous intent by claiming that you've got the paperwork all sorted. God's good design is for marriage to be a lifelong union, so don't go tearing that apart. I think it's really helpful for us to see the heart of the matter that Jesus presents. But at the risk of being too brief in addressing some of our really deep and very real questions about this, I do think it's also a precious opportunity to try and unpack what it means that a Christian person should never seek to end a marriage. What do we actually do with this in life? So for one thing, I think it's helpful to see that the Bible is clear that marriages do end. Most clearly, the death of a spouse clearly ends a marriage. So a widow is free to remarry. You can look at a passage such as 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39 to sum up what is widely taught throughout the Bible on this point. Death ends a marriage. But that same chapter in 1 Corinthians 7 also indicates that a Christian person might find themselves in a situation where the marriage is ended by their spouse. And it seems that this leaves them in a place where they can then legitimately consider remarriage. Now that passage is very complex, it deserves a whole bunch of extra discussion. But the scenario there is when a Christian person is divorced by their unbelieving spouse... And Paul's conclusion, as he seeks to apply Jesus' teaching into this situation, is that the abandoned spouse is is no longer bound by their marriage, by which he seems to mean that they are then free to consider remarriage. And I think that's a principle that helps us to exercise wisdom in the complexity of 
some of the incredibly difficult situations that people find themselves in in marriage. That the Christian person will always be looking to God's intent in marriage, seeking to maintain it as a lifelong union, but they'll never seek to end the marriage. But there may be scenarios where that marriage is, in a sense, taken from them, where the other party has died or ended the marriage. And in these scenarios, the marriage really is ended. The divorce really is real. And they are legitimately able to consider remarriage in a way that pleases God and his heart for marriage. And it's a great grief. Marriages end. Death ends it. Desertion ends it. And the Bible teaches that adultery has the potential to. But that word's chosen carefully too. Because it's also worth noting Jesus' call to forgiveness. While Jesus acknowledges that adultery has the potential to end a marriage in Matthew chapter 5, it's not a given that it will. Because it becomes a context to, to live out the profound gospel picture of repentance and forgiveness which we see expressed in, for example, the Old Testament book of Hosea. And we might think, gosh, that is incredible. Literally, I cannot give credit to that thought. That is incredible that a marriage could survive adultery through repentance and forgiveness. And yet it is a profound picture of God's grace when you see it. And I also want to pause here to note that nothing is ever clear-cut. Marriage and divorce will always be messy and difficult. I want to point out God's heart demonstrated again through the scriptures for the oppressed and the vulnerable and we see that playing out in marriage too. The very passage in Deuteronomy 24 that the Pharisees twisted in their purpose to kind of give permission to adulterous intent, that was actually there to provide protection for the vulnerable divorced woman and if we read on in Mark chapter 10 as we will next week, Immediately after this, we we see Jesus blessing the little children in all of their vulnerability and he says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. In 1 Corinthians 7, we find a scenario where a wife separates from her husband for a time while seeking reconciliation. And I think all of this points us to the reality that, that God knows that there are going to be godly reasons why it might be appropriate to separate from an abusive partner so that finally some clarifying light can be shared on the destructive nature of a relationship so that repentance can be sought forgiveness offered changes made if they can be but even then disciples of jesus will seek to walk in a way that reflects the heart of god not simply walking away but seeking the good of the other friends please let me again acknowledge that on a really complex and and deeply personal issue I know that nothing is ever simple. And if you'd find it helpful just to to chat some of that through uh, in a safe space, then please do feel free to come and talk to me more. But how do we sum it up? Is this passage only relevant to someone who's, I don't know, somewhere on the path into or out of marriage? Is it just a question for people whose personal ethic forces them to wrestle with divorce and remarriage? But I think it's helpful to see that Jesus is teaching his disciples on the way to the cross about what it means to follow him in light of the cross. As I said earlier, what does cross-shaped discipleship look like? 
And I think that's helpful, broader context for us to remember because we see that actually though this speaks specifically into such an important issue of marriage and divorce, I think there are actually some reflections for everyone who seeks to be cross-shaped in the way that we follow Jesus. Cross-shaped discipleship, I've highlighted three things for us. It is a radical discipleship that makes some very big calls and it totally transforms life but we see here that radical discipleship does not mean radical legalism like the pharisees played at there's not getting really good at working out the law of god and all of its loopholes it means a radical change of direction not trying to look at those loopholes to get as close to the cliff as i can whatever it might be whether it's marriage or my bank account or any other area of life but actually turning entirely the other way and looking at the heart of God. And you will not see his heart anywhere more clearly than at the cross of Christ, where God's love and power, where his justice and mercy shine forth in all of their glory. So cross-shaped discipleship is a radical call to live in light of that cross. Second, in that sense, cross-shaped discipleship is always worked out on the way to the cross. It's always lived in the shadow of the cross where Jesus offers the forgiveness for all our sins. Whether it's the baggage of our past relationships, decisions that we may regret, ambiguities that we just find so hard to unpack in our own heart and motivation and experience, or even the very sin that we wrestle with even in the present. Cross-shaped discipleship is always lived in the shadow of the grace of God poured out in Jesus' death, in our place. But as this passage perhaps particularly points us to, cross-shaped discipleship will indeed be costly. Persevering in marriage is always costly. But cross-shaped discipleship will be costly in every sphere of life. Integrity in business is costly. Putting other people's needs before your own is costly. Showing grace to that family member who has so profoundly wronged you, that is costly. But that is also the privilege of the disciple of Jesus, that we are called to reflect the self-giving love of our Lord. To quote from the marriage vows, as I conclude, cross-shaped discipleship is the privilege of role-playing Jesus' own cross-shaped life to an onlooking world, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's the heart of God that he calls us to lean into. So let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, this morning you've brought us to a challenging place uh, to reflect on so something, something that is so personal and so often in our own lives or the lives of those that we know and love, so deeply painful, conflicted, confusing. Jesus speaks a blunt word and so we pray that we would hear his intent in that, to unmask the sin of our hearts, our kind of trivial treatment of your holiness as we look for ways to give permission for all sorts of things that we just want to do, that we know are in the opposite direction of your intent. Help us to hear that rebuke with great sternness and to respond in repentance. 
trusting in your overwhelming grace. Yet, Father, in the messiness of life and relationships, we pray that you would help us to see what it looks like to live life in light of the cross, in all its significance, in all its implications. Please help us to be a community of people where we know that life is hard and messy and we want to keep pointing people to your heart made evident to us in Jesus on the cross. So we pray that we would be humble, compassionate, patient and overwhelmingly full of the grace that you have shown us in the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.